We're going to pray today before we get started, and then we'll get into God's word together. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before your word, may we have expectant hearts to hear from you. May all distractions be set aside. Um, God, may you reign supreme in our hearts. May we be longing to learn more about you so we can have a deeper and more intimate relationship with you and then be poured out to share that love and that intimacy with others and the love of God with others. God, please help us now. May that be the attitude of our hearts as we come to your word. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we all, we all experience some sort of pain, uh, some sort of suffering. Some of us, more than others, it's, there's a spectrum to this. Um, but it's an experience we all share. Um, maybe for you, it's a recent loss of a loved one, and you're still in the process of grief. Um, or for you, it's difficulty in relationship. Maybe it's, it's a disconnect of your family. Um, and, and it used to be fun when, when you used to get together with your family, but because of this one situation, the enjoyment um, has been taken out of the, inqua- out of the equation. Um, or it could be a lingering health issue, physical, mental, emotional, whatever it might be, and you just find yourself constantly tired, doesn't matter what's happening during the day, you wake up and you're tired. Um, And at least, for all of us, uh, the past two years uh, during this pandemic, some of us, it's been an insignificant sort of difficulty. Uh, But for some of us, we've lost loved ones due to the virus. And it's been a lot more serious. Uh, Some of us weren't able to go home. Or at least we have been uh, before. Uh, Whatever the case, we all share this experience of suffering. And as we sit in our pain, I think we might struggle to reconcile the scriptures that we find in the Bible that tell us to rejoice always. Or or the scriptures that say, do everything without complaining. Um, And and we at Freedom Village Church, we just got done uh, with a series not long ago in Philippians. And that's exactly what Paul commands us to do. To do everything without joy, to do everything without complaining, everything with rejoicing. And again, I say rejoice, right? This, this is the command of Paul to us. Um, and what do we do with that? We affirm those to be commands from God. We're to be a joyful people. That is true. But the question we're going to look to answer today is in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our suffering, how do we get there? How do we become a people of joy? How do I get to the place where I can praise God in the midst of my circumstances? And the answer we're going to find in Psalm chapter 13. Psalm chapter 13. So if you do have your Bibles, either electronically or physically in front of you, please open up to Psalm chapter 13. And as you're turning there, just a few things about the psalm itself. Scholars are unsure about the specific context. Um, David doesn't specifically say in the psalm what's going on when he's writing it. Um, But uh, we see a few hints at least. Uh, Because first we see that he's defeated by an enemy. So there's an enemy somewhere in there. And we also see that whatever's happening in his life, it lasts for a long time. So there's some longevity in the pain. We see those two things. So we could assume um, it's very possible that he wrote this uh, while he's running away from Saul. Because obviously that, that that, that was years, right? 
and there was an enemy involved. It could have been um, that it was an enemy nation that was giving Israel some trouble. So he writes this song. Um, It could have been when his own son uh, betrayed him and tried to usurp the throne while he's on it, right? It could have been any of those things. But whatever the case, we know that David is in a dark, lonely, and difficult place. And that's where he pens Psalm chapter 13. So we're going to read that together. Uh, Not in one voice. I'll read it, and you can read it to yourself as I go through it. Psalm number 13 reads like this. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. It just about preaches itself. So I'll just leave now. Uh, it, It is a beautiful psalm. And the reason I, I, I use this psalm is because, I don't know if it was two weeks ago or three weeks ago, whenever we were doing Esther chapter four, what chapter are we on now? Six. You guys are so great. I'm usually, to, to my defense, I'm usually downstairs. Um, I, do, I do, okay, Pastor James is watching right now. <laughs> um, this, this is probably the last time I'm going to be up here speaking to you. I'm just kidding. That, that is a joke. Um, Esther chapter 4 uh, is when we learn about um, Mordecai and, and the increasingly bleak situation that Israel finds herself in. Uh, because what happens is uh, this dude named Haman, we, we know him, uh, he's an enemy of Israel. And Mordecai, he saves the king's life. So as you're reading the narrative, and Pastor James did this very well, um, and if you are new, Pastor James, is our, he's usually up here teaching I'm usually not. Uh, so if you don't like what's here today, come back some other time and you'll enjoy it. Um, okay. Be serious. Talking about lament. Okay. Um, yeah. So, so, so the book of Esther, Esther chapter 4, it's increasingly bleak. Uh, and that's because you expect this reward for, for Mordecai, right? You expect a reward because he just saved the king's life. So you expect something good finally to happen for poor, poor old Mordecai and the people of Israel. But what happens instead is the enemy of Mordecai, someone who hates Mordecai, is promoted. And then you're like, well, that just broke sort of the flow. That's how it feels, at least when you're reading it. But, but Haman's promoted into a position where now he can further oppress the people of Israel. And the response of Mordecai is to lament. It's, he's, it's to mourn. And one of the application points that Pastor James gave to us, it was the third one, I actually remembered that. I didn't have to look back. It was the third one. I was here for that one. Um, And it was consider lament. Consider lament. So that's what I want us to do today. I want us to consider lament and use chapter 13 of the Psalms uh, together with us. Because I want to use this chapter first and foremost to give us categories to be able to speak the language of biblical lament. Because 
Some moments in life are so painful and so agonizing, it's hard to even find words to speak, let alone words to speak to God. So first of all, before we get into this, I just want to say, lament in Scripture is a grace from God. Because those moments where speech is taken from us, we can look in Scripture and find lament and find words now to speak to God into that situation. It's a powerful, powerful grace uh, for the worst moments of life. Because the Bible doesn't ignore suffering. It doesn't ignore it. And any faith that someone might have that, that chooses to exclude the fact that we live in a broken world is not a faith worth considering at all. Right? We need a faith big enough for the times that are awful in life. And, and, and I think the Bible addresses it in such a manner where it, where it gives that to us. Romans chapter 8, many of us are familiar with that chapter. It's very triumphant, right? Uh, How does it begin, Romans chapter 8? Some of us have the entirety of it memorized. Uh, How does it begin? It says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How does that chapter end? Uh, It ends with, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wonderful promises. But what's in the middle of Romans chapter 8? We who have the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. We find two promises, wonderful promises that are beautiful and helpful for us. And in the midst of them, we find the reality of suffering in life, even for those with the Spirit. So the Bible does not ignore suffering. Instead, it gives us tools to deal with suffering as we go through them. What a grace, what a blessing that really is. And again, I believe God does this. He's included a third of the Psalms, by the way, almost a third. I'll correct myself quickly. Almost a third of the Psalms are laments. So it's very important to God that we have these tools for times of distress. Now, because he knows that there's points in life where we need them, right? He knows that. So how do we get to the place of joy, a place of praise, in the midst of pain and suffering? Enter lament. Lament is God's tool for God's people to go from the pits of pain to the heights of praise. From the depths of despair to the satisfaction of worship. And I'm going to define it here for us. Lament is an honest cry from the heart to God that eventually leads to praise and trust. Lament is an honest cry from the heart that eventually leads to trust and praise. So you might think, you know, we have praise psalms, then we have lament psalms. So lament is the opposite of praise. That's not not the case. Uh, Lament is a path to praise in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of difficulty in life. And there are four Um, steps of lament that I want us to go through and use this psalm to do that to help us, remember, give us those categories to be able to speak this language of suffering that the Bible gives us. And the first one is this. So how do we get to that place of joy in the midst of pain, in the midst of despair? Number one, lay out your pain before God. Lay out your pain before God. And I'll read these first two verses once again. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? 
How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? David in these first two verses has absolutely no problem telling God exactly how he feels. He isn't holding anything back. He's completely honest with God about his felt reality. In the presence of God, he brings his grievances in an honest and open manner. And if David can do that, and we find this poem in the book of prayer within Scripture, surely we have permission to do that as well. An honest bringing our pain before God. And I want you to notice the question that David asks here. He says, how long? That's the question. He repeats it four times. How long, how long, how long, how long? And as we know, the greatest pains of life are often not the sharpest, but the ones that last for a long time. Seemingly, they don't end. At least it feels that way in the moment. And this is what David is dealing with. Something that lasts a really long time. Right? How long, how long? So, so I first want to point out the anguish of David. And he uses these two phrases to start out. He says, will you forget me forever? And then he says, how long will you hide your face from me? In ancient Jewish culture, the face uh, was very important, especially in relationship, uh, because the face is where the emotions are seen. So if you're happy, you can see it on your face. If you're sad, you can see it on your face. If you're disappointed, you can see it on your face. So on and so forth. Uh, But also, if you're looking for an audience, um, like I'm clearly looking for an audience, your face is important because that shows me that you're here. right? You're listening. If you turn your face away, you're not interested. You don't care. Right? So what David is explaining, that he, he feels rejected. Uh, he feels abandoned. He feels like God is not interested in David. Like God doesn't care about David. Like he's praying to a wall. That is the felt reality of David. And remember, he, he doesn't have any problem honestly sharing this with God. And I think that this gives us permission to do the same. Our felt reality is there. We are to bring that to him honestly. His shoulders are strong enough to take it, right? He's not some weak dude that's hurt. His feelings don't get hurt by it, right? Bring those things to God. Bring those things to him. I think that's what we can take from this. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Um, I, I, I'm just, I'm caught when I first read it by all the day. Because this isn't just something before he goes to sleep, he feels pain and suffering. He wakes up in the morning, birds are chirping, sun is rising, and he's in sorrow. This is an all-day sort of pain that David is going through. And he also says, on top of all that, that his enemies have triumphed over him. So he's sorrowful and defeated. And I think what we can take from this is that biblical lament vocalizes circumstances that do not seem to fit with God's character. What we know about God, the psalmist David may know that God is in control, but it feels like he's not. So he brings that felt reality to God in prayer, right? In an honest manner. Instead of stuffing our struggles into our chest, uh, lament gives us permission to release that tension and bring those things to God in prayer, which again is a wonderful grace. Uh, and, I, and I do want to mention that lament isn't like a 30-minute sitcom. 
It isn't like after the 30 minutes, the conflict that was at the beginning is now over. Uh, But instead, what lament does is in the midst of that pain, in the midst of that struggle, it helps us through it. It gives us strength to keep carrying on. Right? I I think that's important to mention because I don't want to get the point across that all your troubles are done after you pray for 30 minutes. That's not the case. Right? But it helps us in the midst of those struggles. And I also also want to mention uh, the biblical lament is not simply venting your sinful anger at God, like shaking your fist at him, right? Uh, instead, it is a laying out of your struggles, honestly, right? Um, and, and I think uh, that's helpful for us. And the more honest we can be, I think the sooner we're able to move on to that next element of lament, which we're going to get into now. Oh, just kidding. Before we do that, um, I do have one thing, one point of application that I think will help us in transition to our next point. Um, and that is, I want you to imagine to yourselves that uh, you're in your missional family, um, those of you that haven't been here, missional family is sort of like our small group system here uh, at Freedom Village Church. Imagine you're in your missional family and someone comes to you and they're saying some unchristianly things in, in a point in their life where they are in despair. They're saying, God isn't listening to my prayers. Uh, it's like he, he doesn't care about me. It's like he's rejected me. And they come to you with that. Um, how do you as a Christian, some of us, more mature Christians. How do we respond to something like that? And I think this this psalm is actually quite helpful because when we read scripture, we might be in a place where we're not there right now, right? We're not in that place of deep suffering. Maybe some of us are, maybe some of us aren't. But we need to have a hermeneutic of empathy. And what I mean is that as we read scripture, we read it not just simply thinking of us, but thinking of the person sitting next to you in church. Because if you're not going through it, surely someone around you is. And I think we have a lot to learn from Scripture on how to counsel, how to help those around us, how to pray for those around us. And I I think these three points will help us. So how do we respond to someone who's in a deep agony of the soul? There are three things I'll mention just quickly. The first is sit in understanding. Sit in understanding. Uh, David is known as a man after God's own heart. And he feels, he is willing to honestly bring these complaints to God in prayer. And and, and when you read the first two verses, it almost sounds unchristianly, right? So I think we should be careful not to assume certain things about someone who's in despair, simply because they're saying things that may be untrue about God. We sit in understanding, knowing that they're going through it, and this too will pass. So, you know, you just let that, let that sort of run its course. And you listen. You sit in understanding. Uh, but secondly, you discern the question. I think this is vitally important. Discern the question. It's dangerous to assume that if someone is suffering, they're asking the same question all the time. And I think the, the question we assume people are asking is, why is this happening to me? What's the purpose of this? What's the meaning of my suffering? And sometimes that's the question. That's not David's question. David's question is how long? Those are two different questions that should be addressed in two different ways. One is a question of meaning. The other is a question of strength. One is a question of what is this all even, why is this happening to me? And some Psalms address that. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are important questions. 
But sometimes that's not the question being asked. Sometimes the question is, how can I make it through today? Right? So we need to discern the question because I think when there are two different questions, two different approaches should be had. And obviously this could in itself be a sermon series. I'm not going to go through all of it. But secondly, we should discern the question. Discern the question. Thirdly, we ask God for help. Ask God for help. We lead them, encourage them to ask God for help. David doesn't need an answer. He needs strength. Doesn't need an answer. He needs strength. That's why I believe the best thing we can do for a person is come alongside them, pray for them. If they allow us, pray with them. If they need it, pray on behalf of them. We seek God for help. And that's exactly where David goes next in the text. Seeking God for help. That's our next point here. So how do we get to that place of joy, that place of being able to worship and praise God, rejoicing in Him in the midst of pain? First, we lay out our pain before God. And second, we lift up our requests to God. Lift up our requests to God. And we get this from verses 3 and 4. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. So now that we've laid out our pain before God, we're now lifting up, we're seeking his help in prayer. And he begins verse 3 with, Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. He uses two names for God. Uh, Whenever names for God come up in Scripture, they're often quite important and significant. And here I think it is important and significant. The first, first God name he uses is O Lord, which is the covenant God name, Yahweh. So it's as if he's saying, O Lord of covenant. And then he says, My God, which is the Hebrew word for a mighty God, strength, Elohim. We've heard that before. So it's as if he's saying, consider and answer me, O Lord of Covenant and God of Strength. And I think he uses these intentionally. Because you have to keep in mind, David's a king. So he knows the promises of God. Uh, He knows that God will keep Israel. But it doesn't feel like that right now. It feels like that promise is being compromised. So he chooses in faith to cry out, to seek help from the God who does fulfill promises, even though it doesn't feel like he's doing it right now. And that's the second step. We we request help from the God who can help. And sometimes we seek help in other places, and that just isn't going to fly. It's just not going to work. And and, uh, he also says, David feels shaken. He says that in verse 5. And so he seeks help from the God of all strength and all power because he feels shaken. And in verse 3, David asked God to light up my eyes. In ancient Jewish terms, uh, this is like someone's about to die. They're on, the, they're on the doorstep of death. Their eyes are fading. So he says, light up my eyes or else I'm, I'm done. I'm going to die if you don't help me. So he's asking God for life. So he see, he's, he's saying to God, it seems like your promises are being fulfilled, but I know you're the promise maker, so I'm going to seek help from you. I have no strength, but I know you're the strength giver, so I'm going to seek help from you. Because it matters the direction of our cry, the direction of our call. And I think what's going to help us illustrate that is Esther. Um, Esther, um, in chapter 4, as I've already mentioned, um, Mordecai, he laments, right? 
He puts on sackcloth and ashes and he cries out to God. What is the result of Mordecai's lamenting to God? The result is that he goes to Esther and he encourages her to be bold before the king. And after crying out to God for several days, he says to Esther, don't think to yourself, uh, this is chapter 4, I believe. Yes. Don't think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So not only does Mordecai answer with greater faith, which is often a result of lament, but he answers with trust, knowing that no matter what happens, the people of Israel will make it, because God said so. Uh, He knows that the one he cries out to is the one who can truly aid in times of desperation. He's the one that is faithful to his promises. But we find another lamenter lamenter in the book of Esther, in Esther chapter 6. Haman wanted Mordecai dead. He hated his guts. Because everywhere he went in the kingdom, everybody bowed, everybody treated him with respect, except Mordecai. He's standing erect, give him that eye contact. He hates Mordecai. Haman hates Mordecai. So much so, he planned for his death in chapter 5. And you remember, he was so happy about that, wasn't he? He was so happy about planning his death. But then in chapter 6, the king of Persia elevates Mordecai. He, 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 He promotes him. He brings him up. And how does Haman feel about that? Not great. He goes home, and he mourns, and he grieves. He puts on a hood, and he begins mourning this loss of his. What's the result of his mourning? Further despair and further defeat. This is the result of their direction of their cries. Mordecai eventually finds trust and faith in his mourning because it's directed at the one who is trustworthy and who gives faith. But Haman plunges deeper into despair because he keeps his eyes fixed on himself and doesn't turn to God in lament. So we see that played out in the book of Esther. So how do, how do we, in the midst of pain and agony, begin the journey toward praise to God and joy in Him? First, we lay out our pain before Him, honestly and candidly. Then we lift up our requests to Him. And thirdly, we lean on what we know. Lean on what you know about God. Lay out your pain before God. Lift up your request to God and lean on what you know about God. And we get this from verses 5 through 6. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. Uh, David has candidly spoken in the presence of God. Though he feels rejected by God and distant from him, he asks in faith nonetheless. He asks what he needs. And now we see a shift. And of course it's shown by the transitional word, but, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. He's not feeling the love of God, but he's been, and he's been quite clear about that. But he's saying, I'm putting my trust in what I cannot feel at the moment. And the word here used for steadfast love is that beautiful word chesed. Um, if you're impressed by my pronunciation of that word, that's because I'm currently in Hebrew 1 um, in seminary. 
And uh, so if you ever have a question about Hebrew, uh, don't ask me. I don't know anything about Hebrew. Okay. Um, but I do know how to say chesed. So it's that beautiful word hesed, uh, which means a love that lasts, a love that endures, a love that continues even if it doesn't seem like it should or seem like it does. It keeps going. So David has asked God, how long, right? He's asked God, how long will this continue? Because he can't bear it anymore. He can't bear the length of it. But it's as if we see a shift here. We see a shift. That he believes that God's love for him will outlast the pain he's experiencing now. So first he starts, how long is this? I can't bear it anymore. It just keeps going and going. It feels like it's lasting forever. And then somewhere in the midst of his lament, he remembers that God's love lasts longer than anything he might be going through right now. It is steadfast. It doesn't stop. It's everlasting. And I think that's so helpful for us. David dares to believe that God's love for him will last longer than the suffering that afflicts his life. And God's love for you as a child of God is steadfast. It's everlasting. He confronts the pain of a long-lasting sorrow with the reality of a longer-lasting love. He confronts the pain of a long-lasting sorrow with the reality of a longer-lasting love. And David concludes this chapter with something quite beautiful. He says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. David is able to experience the love of the Lord, the joy of the Lord, because he begins to recount how God has dealt bountifully with him at the end of verse 6. Now, he could be referring to several things. He's probably referring to all of them, right? But certainly... He's referring, he used to be a shepherd boy, but because of God's grace, he's a king, right? He used to be responsible for the sheep of his family, but now he's responsible for the sheep of God's, that are God's people, right, by the grace of God. And certainly what's also on his mind is uh, he's a sinner that has sinned against God, and by God's grace, he's forgiven. He's a child of God, and that's purely the grace of God. He's dealt bountifully with him. And if you've put your trust and your faith in Jesus, you've made him Lord over your life, he has dealt bountifully with you. You have a history of of provision that you can look back on in times of pain and say, even though it doesn't feel like it right now, I remember how he's dealt bountifully with me. I remember how he's forgiven me of my sins and how I, I shouldn't be a child of his, but I am because he's gracious and his love is steadfast. You have a history of deliverance that you can look back on and allow your sanctified memory to fuel your faith to keep moving forward. So how do we get to that place of joy? How do we get to that place of rejoicing in God, praising Him, worshiping Him in the midst of pain? First, we lay out our pain before God. Second, we lift up our requests to God. Third, we lean on what we know about God. And finally, Um, We look to Christ, and this isn't necessarily in the text, but as New Testament believers, those on this side of the cross, it needs to be mentioned. We look to Christ. And this is when I'll ask the praise team to come up as we finish here. Look to Christ. Did Jesus know anything about being in an agony of the soul? 
Uh, the answer is, of course, yes. He does. He did. Uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication in loud cries and tears. Would Jesus have been able to say, verse 2 of Psalm 13, How long will I have sorrow in my heart all the day? The answer is yes. Uh, that's why he's called the man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. That's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, My soul is sorrowful even unto death. And in verse 1, Does Jesus know what it was for the Father to hide his face? Yes, he did. As he hangs on the cross, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Both fulfilling prophecy of Psalm 22 and also crying from his heart. As he was bearing the sins of the world and he was doing that for me and for you. Yes, Christ knew the felt realities of Psalm 13 well. He is the Savior for the suffering because He Himself is the suffering Savior. He has full empathy for us because He's gone through it. He can sit beside us in whatever you're going through, weep with us, and lovingly tell us to keep moving forward because He is the Savior for the suffering because He is the suffering Savior. What a beautiful reality that is. So in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, how do we get to that place of rejoicing in God, that place of praising Him? The answer is biblical lament, uh, which is an honest cry from the heart to God that eventually leads to trust and praise. We do this by laying out our pain before God, lifting up our request to God, and leaning on what we know about God, and finally looking to Christ, uh, our Redeemer and our friend. And as we close today, I want to do something a little bit different. We've been talking about suffering, talking about pain. Um, how about we stand together? back on reading scripture in a way that doesn't just consider you but considers those around you let's pray for one another Uh, maybe you know someone uh, here in our gathering that's going through it that is suffering Uh, let's pray that God be with them uh, in a powerful way that God comfort them help them uh, give them hope and we're going to do this all together as a community if you're new here um, then pray for someone you do know that is going through it let's pray for one another as a body Uh, let's lift one another up in praise to God. Uh, Let's do that now together and I'll close after a few minutes.